You're listening to The Diversity Podcast, a series by the Calgary Journal that looks at underexplored niches of our community. I'm your host, Lexi Freehill, and in this season of The Diversity Podcast, I'm excited to dive into the wide range of female leaders we have here in Calgary that make this city so great. We are grateful to live and work in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siksika, the Pekani, the Ghana, the Satina, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation. Today on the podcast, we have Linda Manyguns, the Associate VP of Indigenization and Decolonization at Mount Royal University. Manyguns is a Blackfoot woman, a PhD holder, and an elder for the Buffalo Women's Society. In July 2021, Manyguns joined the Lowercase Movement in support of the Indigenous struggle for recognition, for which she has received much backlash. This episode is a bit of a longer one, but I enjoyed the conversation so much, and I hope you do too. This interview was recorded remotely, so please excuse the audio fumbles, as there are a few. Welcome to the Diversity Podcast, Linda. Thank you for joining me. It's great to have you. Um, can you start by telling me a little bit about your life and your career? Oh, well, that's a, you don't have enough space or time for it all. So I'll truncate it. <laughs> I'm the mother of two boys. I'm also the grandma for 11 children. Um, I was born on the Satina Nation and um, I didn't grow up in Canada. I grew up in Europe as a as an Air Force brat and uh, came out. I've worked in many different jobs from a high steel construction to being a chef. I've run restaurants and all kinds of things and then went to university. I have four degrees, uh, a BA and, uh, and a master's degree in criminology and sociology, a law degree and a and a PhD in Indigenous knowledge. All of these have all been focused on Indigenous um, knowledge. So every paper I wrote was about our people. And it gave me an opportunity to delve into everything from economics to, you know, social conditions and whatnot, and helped me understand what happened to our people here in, in Canada. That was my purpose in going it's been very important to me that um, that there's equity in this world and that all people are treated equally. And I think that that's my mandate in everything that I've ever worked in and has brought me to where I'm at today, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, to sum it up, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you. Um, so I read on your profile on the Mount Royal website that you're an elder for the Buffalo Women's Society. So can you tell me a bit about the significance of like being an elder for your community, especially as a woman? Okay, so um, within the Blackfoot culture, women and men are equal. So there's no hierarchical kind of 
part to our way of life. The Buffalo Women's Society is a very old, um, quite an ancient uh, society. Um, we start everything. We start our circle camps uh, every year. And then the children's societies go, then the policing societies. We have societies that are similar to social work. We have, you know, like all of those uh, sit afterwards. The societies are a part of the Blackfoot culture. They have been, they're very old. And children from the time that they could walk were put into the age-graded societies, you know, the bumblebees, and the, and they got taught, you know, all the cultural things that were necessary in our for respect as they grew up and um as you got older it would be you know uh more specialized and more specialized as you made the choices in life for what you wanted to be and do so moto geeks are are gosh we're just getting all of our headdresses back from museums, etc., so that we're re- rebuilding our cultures. And Moto Geeks is no different. I mean, I, I, my bundle was repatriated, and it had been so destroyed by the museums. They had taken it apart. They lost the cover. They lost the whistles. They lost everything. They had had it on display for so long that it completely dry, was dried out. So we had to refurbish it all with our our knowledge of how to take care of things and and whatnot so yeah i think the more important part is um learning to live in two worlds and um our our cultures are are regaining um their place in on the reserves as repatriation takes place and so um, my experience will become common as more and more people start to take up the culture again and they let go of Catholic or other religions and start to turn back to their own religions and belief systems. Yeah, for sure. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like as an indigenous woman to kind of establish your foothold in that second world where it's more a bit more of a fight to be acknowledged and to exist uh well it's not so much a fight the aboriginal in the aboriginal world women have equal power so um we we have a status that uh isn't um i don't see it in the non-aboriginal world i think the non-aboriginal people uh assume that we have the same struggle but we don't um gee whiz i mean if you want to get divorced in our world the women own the teepees and we just set the man's moccasins outside the door and he's gets the picture (laughs) you know so we didn't we didn't have the struggles that uh, non-Aboriginal women are faced with. And what is it like as an Aboriginal woman, Aboriginal woman to um, 
to kind of, especially in academia, like, was it tough for you to get your foot in the door and to establish yourself as, um, you know, a, a person with both knowledge and experience and to be like considered as a front runner for positions like the one you hold now? Um, well, I'm not going to say that there's no lateral violence or anything like that. Um, you do have to be very strong. Uh, you have to, you have to be resilient and, in many ways, um, there's a lot of racism in the world. And I, I think perhaps because Aboriginal people face racism on a daily basis, I mean, even when I go in a store, I'm followed around. I mean, even in a meeting, I mean, it's just, there's that automatic stereotyping that uh, you're subjected to. In, in the world. In a way, I think that that's uh, given us a strength because we've, we've learned how to deal with it on a regular, almost standardized basis that you, you get quite tough. You have to be quite tough. And of, of course, sometimes our, the reaction to our toughness is, 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 part of the problem right so yeah we we've had to learn to exist within these you know between the rock and the hard place and um at the same time it's been my culture that's helped me be able to live within that space in a good way today uh with being able to um move into positions like the one that I hold right now, it has broadened out that space significantly and given not just myself, but I would say our people voice, which is is truly uh, reflective of a, a very different and changing world. This I can't even imagine happening 10 years ago even. There's a new, uh, there's a new, restructuring almost in Canadian society that we're seeing. And it's uh, kind of almost like at a grassroots level that this is occurring and we're transforming because people are tired of that old version of Canadian society. And, and I think it's the youth that are moving this, uh, changing the agenda um, and I'm really grateful for it. Really grateful for it. Yes, it does seem to be more of like a ground up shift that's happening. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, centers like Mount Royal and the work that, you know, this university is doing to kind of start the decolonization process. Um, so how important is it for Indigenous women to have female leaders and see others like them in roles of power and roles of leadership? Oh, my goodness. Well, I can tell you right now when I, I, well, I had been working, I was a union leader with CUPE for goodness sakes. 
And at that time, there was 450,000 people in that union in Canada. And I asked the question. I asked them, is there any other Native people? Because I had never worked with a Native person. And I asked them, is there any other Native people in, in this union? And they had to think about it. And they said they thought maybe there was one more in Northern Ontario. And this is like one of the largest unions in Canada. Sorry, what union was it? QP. And what does that stand for? Canadian Union of Public Employees. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, that's just one example of everything that was going on everywhere. And that was so disturbing to me, um, realizing that Aboriginal people have been totally uh, pushed out of society unless you're, you know, able to jump in like I've, I've been able to. I just ignore all the racism. I don't care. That's somebody else's problem, not mine. So I've been, I've been quite resistant that way. But the questions started to happen. And you know what? I used to go visit my grandpa all the time on the reserve and whatnot. And I, but, and I would see the people on the streets. I mean, that was my acquaintance with my own people. And so I went to university with one, one question in mind, and what was, which was, what has happened to the Aboriginal people? So I started out in New Brunswick. And when I was there, Graydon Nicholas was a prof that was there. I was shocked when I met him. I had never met a highly educated Native man before. So it was like, holy smokes. Then Patricia Montour came out. She was actually still in Nova Scotia at the time. And she had been invited just to drop by. And us Native students were asked to come up and meet her. And when I met her, there was a couple of other professors that stopped in and one asked uh, very, uh, apparently he was trying to ask her a, a difficult intellectual question. And she flippantly said, oh yeah, I have a sociology degree and I have my law degree too. I had never met a native woman that was so educated. And to me, that moment, it was almost like, well, if you can do it, I can do it too. We're here. We can, this place is, can be open to us. And so it's very important that we have these new developments happening, that people can actually see that we can actually be part of Canadian society and that we can actually be included in decision-making, that it's not tokenism, right? That we're actually professors, with classes that were actually part of research projects that were part of, were engaging in a way. But I think there's a difference when Aboriginal people get involved and or Aboriginal women. We want to be part of that, but we don't want to be part, just certainly not as a token and certainly not just replicating the non-Aboriginal people but rather bringing our voice and our perspective forward too. Because I believe that Indigenous people and our way of life, the holistic 
approach to our environment has the elements in it that can actually save this world from being destroyed. Yeah, for sure. And I I think it's just, you know, um, a symptom of like generations of total ignorance for sure. But like, you know, just even that shift in perspective from somebody from a different cultural background, like brings so much. And I think for a lot of the non-indigenized world like you don't even really know what you're missing because it has been so marginalized and like so kind of pushed to the side that like you know you you have to take a special class to be introduced to it a little bit but I think yeah we just need it needs to be more present and like representative of you know the the interplay between everybody in society so I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about um, the the controversy in the recent years regarding um, your ad- your adoption of the the lowercase. Oh. So yeah, it's not nice getting death threats, and it's shocking. You know, I honestly can tell you without a doubt when I read that. I literally, I, I know I went into some kind of state of shock because um, I, I had no way to be able to process what was going on because I hadn't expected it. I had no idea what triggered that response because I never knew anybody was that sensitive. And not only that, but a, a black lady, Bell Hooks, had started it. Two other people, E.E. Cummings and and Kilchowski, had done that. Kilchowski works at University of Manitoba. He got no flack for it. And yet when I did it, the whole world flew apart. And I was targeted by people, you know, uh, that are very hateful and horrid, horrid. And... And I still have an open file for with the hate crimes unit and with the city police as a result of it. Because they were, these were definitely death threats, put it that way. And um, I, I, I still don't understand it. Uh, I had no idea. I think when Fox News got hold of it, that was the thing that... Uh, blew it into the unreal part of the world and outside of my understanding of anything. And yeah, I, you know, I, I wouldn't wish anything like that on anybody else. And, you know, I don't even know how to tell somebody how to avoid it. Cause I don't even know how that happened or that they cared that much about lowercase yeah, it seems honestly like the most, the least inflammatory thing anybody could do is just, you know, change capitalization, like, but to to receive that amount of backlash is just, really is stunning. Yeah, it was. And I mean, the purpose of going lowercase was because, because it was a black lady that started this. It was people that were advocating for 
we're going to go lowercase was is is basically what they were saying because those those entities that are capitalized are the ones that are 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 our oppressors and so we're not going to recognize those oppressors anymore by capitalizing their letters the letters of the their titles and stuff like that i mean and so i wanted to show support for other groups who are also marginalized and experiencing hatred and and whatnot the person who started this movement was a black woman. Um, do you think that you would have gotten as much backlash for adopting the lowercase movement if you were a man or if there was a man in your position who had done the same thing? Do you think people would have been as, as brazen with their, with their words of hate? I actually, nobody else got targeted like this, that none of those other three people, I haven't heard anything about an experience similar to mine that also adopted lowercase. And then since then, I found out, which was amazing, I was asked to speak uh, to several radio stations that were in the States, indigenous radio stations. And while I was uh, being interviewed, I found out that many of the indigenous people down in the United States don't capitalize either. I did not know that until this experience, but they never went through this. So I, I have no idea. I think it was a timing thing. I think, I don't know. I, I couldn't even tell you because I don't even know where to start with it. All I know is how horrible it was. I, yeah, I can't imagine like how much that would be to process and to deal with on a, on a daily basis. Do you still get emails or are they just like filtered out and sent directly to your, um, uh, sent directly to the police? Um, yeah, I don't see them. The techie people, uh, when the thousands and thousands of emails came, what they did was they, they uh, found that there was about 300 words that these people use. And so if anything comes in with any of those 300 words, it automatically gets shuffled off to the police file and and whatnot and they've told me you never want to have to ever read any of those ones so yeah they've pretty well protected me from having to go through that experience again well that's that's a good thing to hear because i can imagine what that would do to you know mental health having to be bombarded like that yeah it was a it was shocking actually it's it's uh quite shocking when you realize that these people want you dead they they want to kill you in as many ways as possible it's like holy smokes i don't even know who these people are (laughs) 
to have that uh, horrid um, hatred directed at you for for no other reason than I'm not using capital letters. <laughs> Which is like the, you know, I it's got a great message behind it, the movement. I I just learned about it recently while researching you and I I mean I'm I totally get it. I am with you all the way. I definitely support it, but it's like very, you know, it seems like a very subtle, very tame way to protest like you're not out it seems very non-offensive and like very non-inflammatory so it's just crazy the 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 malice that accompanies the backlash oh yes um i actually pity those people for being in such a dark space i can't even imagine carrying that much hatred in your head Yeah, it's got to be a very dark world to live in. Yeah, well, that's, um, I think it's a a great way to look at it from your perspective. Because I think that's very true. Like, it obviously isn't really anything to do with you. I think it says more about whoever is whoever's taking the time to, like, put that in an email. But I'm sure, you know, that thought only provides so much comfort when you're being totally bombarded. Um, so I just have one more question for you. Um, this semester, I'm actually in an Indigenous Studies class, and it's honestly opened my eyes a crazy amount and really helped me start my own decolonization process. Do you have any books or other material that you can recommend to myself and people listening who are interested in learning more about traditional Indigenous knowledge and the process of decolonizing one's own mind? You know, um, people seem to think that it's really hard to find parallels between our thinking and non-Aboriginal thinking, but we're really quite similar. Human beings are human beings. And I mean, we had, we had societies that were similar to social work. I mean, there's, we still have the same problems as human beings anywhere else in the world. Um, we just developed it differently and based on our philosophies and our thinking and, and whatnot. So it's just being open to, um, seeing and organizing the world in just a very, in a, in a different way, but with the same goals and object, objectives as uh, we have. And that is to have a society where you have good people that uh, know how to, how to be good human beings and to live right. And that's what everybody wants to do in every society. So um, I know Marie Batiste is my favorite author, and her works have, have been done from in creating that middle space that we that we we need to expand on, where where both views of the world can can exist. So it's yeah, I mean whether you're coming from it from a tr traditional perspective, which grounds me or an academic perspective, 
about Indigenous, the Indigenous worldview. Well, that's another worldview that's got validity as well, but it's very different than the traditional one. And I think one must always be aware of the fact that Aboriginal people have not given up that sacred stuff to the academics. Um, as our cultures start to grow and expand, so will our societies and our way of life. And so we really need to find that middle ground so we can coexist together. And any information that you read is going to be beneficial to you. But it's like a big puzzle that you have to put together. It's a big puzzle. You have, it's, it, there's a lot of historical pieces that are missing, as we found out um, recently, especially, you know, with residential schools and all of the, the history that was not written, you know. Why were academics not writing that history in? You know, um, how, why did they take part in that in in the colonizers' game of of hiding that history? And there, there's lots of questions that have to be asked. Do we really have a liberal education, or is it just a colonizers' view of the world? I mean, how can you claim a liberal education when you've deliberately hidden one whole way of life? So, I mean, I, the more important part is that we're even asking those questions. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely where it starts, right? And helping that kind of from the bottom up grassroots movement find legs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it will take every single individual, um, a little reading, a little listening, a little, you know, meeting people, go out and meet some Indigenous people. I used to do work with corporations and the first thing I'd ask everybody is how many of you have ever talked to an Aboriginal person or had them as a neighbor or anything how, how much have you ever had to do with an Indigenous person and you know what it is very very minimal or little that any group has had with you know in regards to even beginning to develop a relationship with an Aboriginal person or a neighbor or anything. So my first suggestion to people is go and find uh, something going on that's Indigenous and go and talk to some Indigenous people, get to know them, or buy some of their earrings or the things that they're beading. Help help our people, um, you know, with what they're doing to survive. Contribute that way and get to know um, make a friend. <laughs> it's remarkable how much that alone can change a person's attitude. And once you realize that we're just human beings, that fear level goes down. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I totally agree with that. Cause that was my experience in a lot of ways. Like I grew up in rural Alberta, not far from um, the community of Frog Lake and despite being super close and despite the idea that like assimilation is complete or you know as near completion as it needs to be in order to be like you know um one society 
there, there is just like a massive separation and, and segregation there. And it wasn't until I came to university and it just like opened my eyes in, in a lot of ways. And even just having one friend, just making one friend can really break down those barriers. And like you said, remove, remove that fear and all of those all of those barriers that come from just ignorance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, well, you know, the non-Aboriginal people and the Aboriginal people were brainwashed to believe that, you know, the rhetoric that the government was, was uh, claiming that we were savages, that we were, and I mean, there's still Aboriginal people that are ab- afraid of their own culture. So we're we're having to, you know, get rid of all of those notions as well. So it, it's Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people that have been subjected to this horrible brainwashing that the government has uh, has has done to its own society in order to justify taking the land. Yeah, for sure. And keeping those, there's like a vested interest in keeping that divide there, for sure. Oh, yeah. Divide and, divide and conquer mentality is, I mean, it's so Machiavellian and, and whatnot. It's, you know, these are tactics as old as, as humanity, for goodness sakes. Yes, that Certainly. is very true. Yeah, so certainly I I hope that we're starting to move into a society that's a little bit more mature. Yeah, and is a little more self-aware in that we can we can recognize those techniques and say, hey, do I really want to like be a part of continuing this or maybe should I just like take a step back and ask a question or two? Yeah, and, and, and reassess the things that I've been told or the stereotypes I have in my head or start to realize, are these facts or are these just, you know, some old belief that's been sustained in society for so long that we forgot to ask the question anymore? We just do it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's just old habits. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, the definition of, you know, the institution, right? So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Is there anything else you'd like me to know about your work or anything else you'd like the listeners to know? Um, No, I think we've covered everything. I think the most important thing is just to... You know, respect one another and be fair and kind. You know, um, learn to listen to one another, whether it's intergenerational, whether it's, uh, you know, different cultures. It doesn't matter what. We're all here for a purpose and we're here to be together and work together. And yeah, and we all have something good to share. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Linda, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to 
chat with me. I have to say your resilience is inspiring and I hope you keep fighting the good fight. (laughs) Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Diversity Podcast. The music you heard was Jolly Snowy Night by Sky Jordan. Thanks for listening, and remember to head to thecalgaryjournal.ca to check out the next episodes of Diversity, featuring other Calgary women in leadership and more.